0: Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're gonna hear from Diane Macedo. Diane is an Emmy Award-winning ABC News correspondent, former insomniac, and author of The Sleep Fix, a practical, user-friendly guide to getting better sleep. In The Sleep Fix, she flips the switch on common advice, illuminating her own relentless search for how to get a good night's sleep, and the surprising scientific and practical solutions she found along the way. In the episode, Diane shares why orthosomnia may be causing your poor sleep, common obstacles to falling and staying asleep, what to do if you're in the habit of watching TV and looking at your phone before bed, and more. Before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I don't know about you, but I used to think that eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store. That is, until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since Thrive delivers groceries directly to your door, they're able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. When I buy groceries on Thrive versus going to my local supermarket, I save at least $20 per order, and I'm able to fill up my cart from the comfort of my couch. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash Thrive Market, or just click through the link in the show notes. All right, it's time to hear from Diane. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no nonsense, research backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long term, have the high energy you crave and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Diane. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Hi,
1: Brooke. Thanks for having me.
0: Can you start by sharing a bit about your background and specifically what led you to write The Sleep Fix?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I had trouble sleeping for years. And uh, for a while, I just sort of dismissed it as, you know, oh, I'm just a bad sleeper. That's just how I'm built. Uh, But eventually, it got so bad that I really couldn't ignore it anymore. And so when I went searching for answers, I found a lot of advice and information on how important sleep was, almost like shaming me as if I wasn't trying hard enough. I felt really ashamed. Um I went to my doctor and her only recommendation was for me to take sleeping pills which she convinced me to do which I then developed a tolerance to. Um I found a lot of ineffective advice, you know, put lavender oil on your pillow, try this special tea, swear off screens in the evening, quit caffeine. Um none of it helped me. Um I think to some extent it actually made me worse. And then I found a lot of impractical advice, stuff that for me wasn't really doable unless I wanted and was willing to give up things that I love, um, and and chief among them, my job at the time as an overnight news anchor, and to a certain degree, my career in news in general, based on the advice I was reading. And I just kind of refused to accept all of that. Um, so I decided to put on my journalist hat, and I started combing through hundreds of studies. I kind of traded the uh, bestseller books that I had been reading for sleep textbooks and uh, books written by sleep clinicians who actually treat people with sleep problems. And that's where I found my answers. And after implementing um, the techniques, some of the techniques that I found there and sort of putting my own practical twist on it, uh, I started sleeping well and getting a full night's sleep in the middle of the day within about three and a half weeks. And so I just kind of thought, you know, why isn't anybody talking about this stuff? And, um, and yeah, so I dug a little deeper, you know, fast forward a few years when I did more research and saw that there wasn't really much out with this kind of messaging. Um, I, you know, I started conducting all those interviews and digging deeper into the research and, and with the help of many, many, many top sleep experts, they sort of helped me take what the science says and turn it into practical, actionable advice that we can all work into our everyday lives. And so I essentially wrote the book that I wish had existed when I was struggling, so that hopefully other people don't have to, or if they already are, then they can find a solution uh, more easily than I did.
0: Mm. I so relate to that story. I've always kind of seen myself and named myself a bad sleeper or I'm just, yes. I'm okay at it. I'm just not the best. I'm not that person who can put my head on the pillow and fall asleep within two minutes. I'm so envious of those people or the person who doesn't awaken the entire night, no matter what, if there's a train going by or
1: those. Was... He has these... Sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, you know, I think We also have to realize that those aren't always great signs either. You know, I think there are a lot Mm -hmm. of people out there who think they're quote unquote great sleepers who actually have a sleep disorder. So I, you know, I I try to stray away from um, bad sleeper and good sleeper, and even you know I'm conscious of that now that I have my own children to not label them that way because it's much more nuanced than that. You know, kind of the whole the whole scenario, and we often talk about sleep. Like it's a skill, and if we work hard enough at it, we'll get better at it. And that mentality can actually often cause insomnia. You know, it's definitely part of what contributed to mine. And so, you know, I think one of my favorite um, quotes that I heard while while writing the book was, sleep is not something we do. It's something that happens to us. And so, I, you know, I think in many ways, for especially for those of us, and I say us because I'm including myself in that, who are kind of type A and you know we're used to, we want a goal, we're going to work really hard to achieve it. I think it's really helpful for us to realize that there's a certain element of this that actually benefits from surrender. And I, I, I think if we can get into that mindset and realize that the goal here is not to make ourselves sleep, it's to remove sleep obstacles, figure out what's standing in the way between your body doing what it is naturally equipped to do. And we just want to remove those obstacles to make it, you know... Uh, a more pleasant environment for sleep to arrive but you can't really make sleep happen and i think the more we try and the more we look at it that way sometimes the harder sleep becomes
0: i know you've talked about orthosomnia is that kind of what you're alluding to here
1: in a way yes uh, can
0: you can you explain what that is yeah
1: orthosomnia i think was one of the most interesting things that i came across uh orthosomnia is a relatively new term in sleep medicine, it's sort of unofficial. It's not a, an official condition that you're going to be diagnosed with, but it essentially means sleep perfectionism. It's and it's become an increasing problem, or at least so much so that scientists felt the need to give this unofficial term for it, uh, particularly because of the presence of sleep trackers. And I think just this new attention on sleep health, which is a great thing, you know, overall, but it can be too much of a good thing in that there are people who now they get their sleep trackers and, or they hear you know, some podcast about how everybody needs to get at least X hours of sleep. And now they become so obsessed with trying to get exactly X amount of hours on their sleep tracker or get a certain percentage of REM sleep or beat last night's sleep score or whatever it may be. It's sort of this goal-oriented attitude towards sleep that they actually end up giving themselves insomnia when they didn't have a problem to begin with. So you have people who maybe they slept seven and a half hours every night, seven hours every night, six and a half hours every night, whatever it is, and that was fine for them. They now try so badly to get eight hours, they start stressing about the fact that they aren't and sort of interrogating that. And all of that sort of gins up um, the the stress response in your body that powers up your wake drive. And it essentially gives you insomnia.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I knew for myself that getting one of those sleep trackers would not be a good thing because I don't have a Fitbit first steps. I mean, I guess my phone measures it, but I don't have an Apple watch or anything. Um, but it's funny you bring that up because I'd never heard that term, but I just knew inside of me when everybody started tracking sleep that because I'm type A, this would not be a good road for me to go down and I could tell that would actually make it worse, but it's interesting that studies also suggest that.
1: Yeah, that was very uh, intuitive on your part. Uh, (laughs) I did not get that memo, and while I did not have a sleep tracker through this whole process, I most certainly suffered from orthosomnia where I was trying every sleep tip, and I was trying to make sure I was doing it perfectly because I felt like well, you know, I read this top 10 list of things to sleep well. And so I'm doing the things and I'm not sleeping well. So I must be doing them wrong or not doing them well enough. And sort of took mm-hmm. this perfectionist attitude toward toward that thinking. If I just, you know, for example, created the perfect bedtime routine, then I would sleep well. And if I'm not sleeping well, that must mean my bedtime routine isn't perfect enough. And it's quite the opposite. And so, you know, I think we just sort of stumbled into one of the big sleep myths out there, which I think there's this perception that if you sleep poorly, that must mean you have poor sleep habits. And what I hear from sleep clinicians is frequently it's the opposite. You know, when someone comes in and says, you know, doc, I don't know why I'm not sleeping. I'm doing all the right things. I quit caffeine. I quit alcohol. I, you know, do this, that, and the other thing. I, you know, don't look at any screens within two hours of bedtime. And, you know, they tell me every time when, as soon as I hear that, I know at the very least this person has insomnia. They might have something else too. But at the very least, I know they have insomnia because we're thinking and worrying and working so hard to sleep, we're actually creating a problem.
0: Hmm. Interesting. I mean, yeah, I don't have a, a tracker, but I do try things still to sleep better so it sounds like that is not
1: good to do. <laughs> I mean, I think it depends on the attitude you're taking toward that thing. And is that thing okay. actually aimed at your problem, right? I just wrote an entire book of sleep solutions. So I'm certainly not saying don't try anything to, you know, help your sleep. You, you, you know, if you have a sleep problem, you're going to have to do something to alleviate it. Um, but I think there are two keys here that I try to stress in the book. One is step one is not let me try all of these things from this, you know, these articles on top 10 sleep tips. Because the top 10 sleep tips are going to differ from person to person based on you, your individual needs, and your actual sleep problem. So I think step one is to try to identify what it is that's keeping you awake. And then once you figure that out, like what is your actual sleep problem? And so if you start from that perspective, now when you try to look at solutions, you can really pinpoint the solutions that address that problem and find evidence-based solutions for that thing. And then you can look at those solutions, and especially if you now have an understanding of what the problem is, why it's happening, what the best solutions are based on evidence, and how they work, now you have a recipe where you can say, okay, this is my problem, most likely at least. These are the best solutions for that problem. Which of these solutions feel like they would work best for me in my life? And how can I maybe tweak them to fit into my life so I'll actually do them? And that was really the kind of the, the framework with which I wanted to set up the sleep fix so that it wasn't just a, here's a bunch of stuff to fix your sleep. It was sort of a taking people through an educated view of how to pinpoint their problem, find the best evidence-based solutions for it, and then be able to have, go into that with an understanding so that you can now tweak these things to fit into your, in your life in the way that works best for you.
0: How do you go about figuring out your sleep problem?
1: Um, I mean, the whole first chapter of the book is sort of a brief description of some of these things with some obvious and not so obvious red flags. Um, so it's a bit much to try to answer in one question, but uh, a few examples. Insomnia, my shorthand for insomnia is when you can't sleep because you can't relax. Right? Insomnia will present as... Difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, or waking up too early for no apparent reason when you give yourself the opportunity to get enough sleep um, and resulting in impairment. So if you have those nights where you can't fall asleep for really no obvious reason, you or you can't stay asleep for no obvious reason, and you feel like crap the next day and you spent enough time in bed, uh, that, qualifies as insomnia. If it happens regularly, you know, that happening every once in a while is a completely normal thing and not something you have to address. Your best bet, ignore it, move on, just carry on with your normal sleep schedule as usual. Uh, But it can become a long-term problem. And if it is, then it has to be addressed. And I think a lot of people think, oh, I don't have insomnia. I just, you know, I can't shut my brain off at night. I don't have insomnia. I just have racing thoughts. That is insomnia. Uh, And so, you know, I think there can be that light bulb moment there for people just reading that description to say, oh, yeah, oh, that's me. Oh, okay. And so not only does that help you now identify at least part of what's causing your problem, but also the knowledge of knowing insomnia is not something you just have to live with. There are lots of things you can do to address it. And, you know, and you move on to a different chapter of the book to get a whole list of those and why they work. Um, Circadian rhythm disorder. Or our circadian rhythm issue. Sometimes I stray away from using the term disorder because I think it makes people think that, oh, I don't have a disorder because I function fine every day. I still get up, I go to work, I feed my kids, you know. And I don't think we sometimes realize that you can have a sleep disorder, and most people who have sleep disorders still are able to, you know, function in everyday life. So, um, so anyway, a circadian rhythm issue is a timing issue. And I separate this from insomnia. Some people would group these things together all under the umbrella of insomnia. I think it's easier to think of these as two different problems because they're caused by different things and they're resolved with different solutions. Um, But a circadian rhythm issue is a timing issue. It happens when you're falling asleep or trying to fall asleep at a time your body naturally wants to be awake and when you're trying to be awake at a time your body naturally wants to be asleep. Now, this will be most familiar to people as jet lag. Uh, And we all know when we travel your body's still on your old time zone, you go to your new time zone. And that can be really difficult to try to fall asleep and and feel energized at the right times, especially if that mismatch is big. And what I think people don't realize is even if you take time zones out of the equation, what time your body clock sends you wake signals and sleep signals differs from person to person. And that's what determines whether you're a morning person or a night owl. Uh, That's a biological thing. Uh, And so having this big mismatch between your sleep schedule and uh, your biological clock is not something that only happens to us when we travel or if we are overnight shift workers. Some people are jet lagged every single day. And there, the, the easiest way to differentiate this from insomnia is when it happens to you because it would often present in the same way, right? You have difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep. You wake up prematurely or you feel like your sleep is not restorative. Um, one of the key differentiating factors is when it happens. If you feel like you sleep fine during the, uh, you sleep poorly during the week when you have to wake up for work at a specific time, but then on the weekends, if you could sleep in or go to bed late or both, you actually sleep pretty well, then that's a sign that your circadian rhythm is the issue. Uh, so that's a sort of another example of how to tell them apart. And it is possible to have both. I had both. So I had to address both my body clock and I had to address that sort of racing mind, low sleep drive issue that was fueling my insomnia. Um, And sleep apnea is another very common one. Um, And that is a completely different issue that involves breathing in your sleep or rather lack thereof. So when you have sleep apnea, you repeatedly stop breathing in your sleep all night long. Um, it's incredibly dangerous and incredibly common, but also difficult because most people who have sleep apnea don't, they're not aware that this is happening in their sleep, right? The same way you usually don't know if you snore unless somebody else tells you that you snore. And one of the symptoms of sleep apnea is loud snoring. Um, so there are health screeners that you can take. There's one that I include in the book called the stop bang questionnaire um that will uh, that's STOP BANG B A N G um and if you it's an acronym but if you um, look that up you'll find a, a link at the top that will send you to the screener and you can answer a series of questions and it will tell you um you know kind of loosely assess assess your risk of sleep apnea uh but there are also a few kind of general questions if you are a habitual loud snorer i would absolutely get tested for sleep apnea if you uh, wake up throughout the le- throughout the night a lot, I would get tested for sleep apnea. Uh, if you um, struggle with feeling sleepy during the day, excessive daytime sleepiness, meaning if you're the type of person who would doze off in a waiting room, you know, or if you sit down to watch TV in the afternoon at a time you would expect to feel awake, and you know you'd have a tendency to doze off, or at least really want to. Uh, those are signs that you are sleep deprived. And if you don't feel like there's an obvious reason for that, because you're know you you getting enough sleep, you go to bed at a decent hour, you fall asleep, you wake up in the morning, you think you've got a full night's sleep, then that's a sign that something is disrupting your sleep. I call those secret sleep disorders. And sleep apnea is just one of them. Um, so those are kind of cues that you can follow to check in with yourself and say, okay, it's time for me to check this out and investigate and see what's wrong. And so and that may result in a full-blown sleep study where you go overnight in a lab and they assess you for any number of sleep disorders or um, if those can be hard to to come by sometimes. And so uh, another alternative is if you have certain other red flags for sleep apnea specifically, like the snoring, for example, then you can reach out to a sleep specialist about getting an at-home sleep apnea test. And they're super simple. They send them to you in the mail. You just put this thing on your finger. or Some of them have a nose cannula, depending on which device it is. And it will send your data directly to the sleep specialist. And then they can treat you right on the spot remotely and tell you, you know, if you need what else, you know, then, then you move forward from there. And I do think there are some people who are trying to put off getting the sleep apnea diagnosis, even if they do suspect they have it because they don't want to sleep with a CPAP machine on their face. And so I also want people to know that, yes, the CPAP machine is the gold standard treatment for sleep apnea, but it's not the only option. And, you know, it's not going to do you any good if you're not going to wear the CPAP machine. And so a good sleep specialist should be able to talk you through other options, like a mouth guard, for example, officially a mandibular advancement device, but AKA a mouth guard. Um, It's a special kind of mouth guard that is FDA approved to treat sleep apnea. There are also surgical options. Sometimes just weight loss can cure sleep apnea and snoring. Um, So you know there are lots of other options, and a good sleep specialist should be able to walk you through all of them. But it's very common and very dangerous. So highly recommend if any of this sounds familiar, absolutely talk to your doctor about getting screened for sleep apnea one way or the other. Hey
0: there, health investor. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just popping in here for a quick minute to share an exciting opportunity with you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in sustainable weight loss. If you've been struggling to lose weight and actually keep it off, I'd love to connect with you in my group or one-on-one coaching program. Unlike restrictive, hard-to-follow diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed habits and an everything-in-moderation mindset so that you can lose weight permanently feel completely in control of your cravings, have steady energy throughout the day, and stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs and apply to work with me, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at The Health Investment. Now, back to the episode. You mentioned numbers in terms of sleep of, you know, we hear the number eight, and then you said some people would get six and a half and feel fine, what did you learn about how much sleep we should be getting every night, or is it unique to every person?
1: It is unique to every person, and I think one of the myths out there is that we all need eight hours. Um, mm-hmm. the, the National Sleep Foundation survey, which is usually um, what people are referring to when they talk about sleep needs, the actual findings of that survey were most adults are going to need somewhere between seven and nine hours of sleep. Um, but in that same survey, they say anywhere between 5 to 11 hours may be appropriate for some. And that's important to know, um, not only because you, know, you may need more than you know, the quote-unquote recommended eight hours, and now you're depriving yourself because you're, you're limiting that, um, but on the, on the flip side, I think we all hear about the repercussions of getting, not getting enough sleep but you very rarely hear the repercussions of trying to force yourself to get more sleep than you need. And the answer in short is you often give yourself insomnia because when we spend too much time awake and frustrated in bed, our brain starts to learn instead of associating bed with a place where we feel calm and sleepy, our brain learns that bed is a place where we need to be alert. It's a stressful place where we need to be alert. And so now you might be dozing off on the couch and feeling really sleepy, and suddenly you get in bed, your head hits the pillow, and your brain just, boom, turns on and starts going. That's something called conditioned arousal. It's a calling card for chronic insomnia. And it happens as a result of us spending too much time frustrated in bed. And so if you are, let's say, a six-hour person who needs six hours of sleep, and you're trying to force yourself to get eight hours of sleep, chances are you're going to be spending time either at the front end. It's going to take you a long time to fall asleep or you're going to have these gaps in the middle of the night where now you're waking up and and you're having a hard time falling back asleep or you wake up too early in the morning and you can't fall back asleep because you're essentially fragmenting your sleep uh, and now you're creating these holes or you manage to go the full night but you're fragmenting your sleep in a way that now that sleep is less restorative because you're getting lighter stages of sleep. Um, and so Insomnia is not really about how much or how little sleep you're getting but it's about how efficiently you're sleeping. And if we try to force ourselves to get more sleep than we need in one way or another, we decrease our sleep efficiency and and that can have its own problems.
0: You mentioned the term night owl also or you know there's the early bird. I think the early birds are celebrated in society yes. of you're supposed to be the person that wakes up and seizes the day and you waste the day away if you sleep past seven or eight or whatever some arbitrary number is. And so that's something I've also struggled with. Cause I know I am more of a night owl. I know I need a lot of sleep and I also prefer to sleep in somewhat whenever possible. And for years I was a teacher and that was not a good fit for me Oof. in terms of my sleep schedule. Cause I would try to force myself to fall asleep early-ish cause I had to get up at six 30. Um, so is that how do you help people with that? So, I've heard before of oh, it's just a myth that you're a night owl and everybody should be able to train themselves to get up early. And for years, I thought there was something wrong with me. But does research suggest there are certain people who do better staying up later, getting up later? You don't have to be the early bird who gets the worm.
1: Uh, correct. And what a bunch of jerks, right? Those early birds yeah. ruining it for the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. They're the worst. (laughs) Um, It's there. It's a yes and yes kind of answer because it is a biological trait, Uh, your chronotype, and there are certain tests that, if you find the right rare, you know, sleep specialist, they would literally be able to test your your blood or your you know, and and look into your genetics and tell you what you are. Um, So yes, it is a biological thing that determines. When your circadian rhythm starts to send you wake signals like cortisol, for example, and when it starts to send you sleep signals like melatonin, for example, if you are a natural early riser, an early bird, so to speak, you start getting those wake signals early in the morning and you start getting those sleep signals early in the evening. If you're a night owl, you start getting those wake signals later in the morning, or maybe even early afternoon if you're an extreme night owl, and you don't get those sleep signals until late at night, or maybe even the early morning hours. So translate that to trying to keep a quote-unquote normal work schedule, and you have a ton of people who are waking up, not only waking up when their body's still sending them sleep signals, but probably trying to function through the first portion of their day. While their body's still sending them sleep signals. And then they're trying to, they think, oh God, I'm so tired. I really need to get more sleep. I need to go to bed earlier tonight. And they were already probably going to bed when their body was still sending them wake signals. And now that they're trying to go to bed early, even more so. And we've already talked about what happens when you lay in bed before you're ready to sleep and you start getting frustrated, right? And so that's how someone like me ends up with both a circadian rhythm issue and insomnia. Uh, but there, so, so first off, there is no shame in being a night owl and to the extent you can respect your chronotype, right? There's no reason that you have to wake up at 5am to get your workout in or whatever else you do. If you like that and that works for you, great. But there seems to be, I see a lot of advice out there, even from sleep coaches and health coaches sometimes about do this first thing in the morning, right? Uh, If you're going to meditate to ensure that you do it, do it first thing in the morning. If you're going to do, you know, some other health benefit, do it first thing in the morning. If you're going to work out, do it first thing in the morning. And I start adding these things up and I'm like, okay, well, so far if I followed all of this person's advice, I would have to wake up, you know, two hours early so that I could get my workout in, so that I could get the meditation in, so that I can get whatever else in. Uh, And I am a night owl, and I have a lot of other things to do with my morning. And the last thing that I would want to do is try to force myself to wake up even earlier than I already have to so that I'm working even more against what my body naturally wants to do. So I think to the, mo- to the extent you can, respect your chronotype. There's nothing wrong with being more productive with your evening hours. Lots of people get things done at 10 p.m., 11 p.m., etc. cetera. Um, you don't have to get it done at 5 a.m. So, tailor that schedule to a way that works for you. If you know, if your body wants to sleep in until eight am and that works for you and your work schedule and your lifestyle permits that, then do it. There's no reason to be ashamed of that. However, many of us, you as a teacher, me as a news anchor, are forced into schedules that require us to be up earlier than our body naturally wants to, or maybe to be up later than our body naturally wants to. And so I have, you know, the entirety of part three. Um, of the sleep fix is all about different tools to understand and sort of shift your circadian rhythm. Um, I obviously can't go into all of them um, right now, but the most powerful tool is light. So I'll focus on that. Think of humans as being solar powered. We are programmed to be awake during the day and asleep at night. Um, And so the most powerful tool to set your biological clock is bright light. So this is why you often hear the advice to get thirty minutes of sunshine first thing in the morning, bright sunshine. If you can do that, that's great, but that's not realistic for me. Um, I live on the east Coast it's freezing you know for half of the year, so I'm certainly not going outside um, to get direct sunlight. I uh, often have to wake up for work before the sun is actually up so that doesn't really work. Uh, and I have way too much other thing uh, too many other things to do with my morning than to factor in thirty more minutes of sunbathing so a simple tip that works really well for me and worked really well, even as an overnight shift worker, is to put a therapy light in your bathroom. They are super uh, accessible, affordable. You can find them, you know, anywhere online pretty much. Uh, they have lots of different shapes and models and whatnot. <clears throat> and find one that you think will work best in you know whatever aesthetic you want to go for. Mine looks like a, like an e-reader, kind of like a Kindle, but with a picture frame stand on the back. It's all white. Uh, and so it's really small. It's portable. And I just have that on in my bathroom and I turn it on in the morning while I'm getting ready. So you can use this while you're brushing your teeth, while you're washing your face, while you're doing your hair, makeup, shaving, whatever it is. And it just has to be in a position where the light is reaching your eyes. You don't have to be staring at it. And what this is doing, it's mimicking sunlight and it's telling your brain it's wake up time. It's morning. It's time to be awake. And so that now helps to set your body clock. So you start getting wake signals at that time. And because it's setting your clock, it actually helps you to start getting sleep signals at the right time too. And this can also help people who maybe don't don't identify as a night owl, but because they, and I say they, this is most of us. If you spend most of your day indoors, Instead of going from bright sunshine all day long, think about how bright it is when you go out on a sunny day and you have to squint your eyes just to be out there. Think about the contrast that signals to your body to be outside all day in that bright sunshine and then be in no light at night, right? Modern times now, we spend most of our times indoors with electric lighting. And so instead of going from really bright light during the day to no light at night, we go from what science would consider to be dim light in our offices all day, and then we come home and we're exposed to dim light in the evening. That kind of muddies your body's ability to tell what time it is, which means instead of getting really strong wake signals in the morning and strong sleep signals at night, the whole signal can get kind of muddy. So this can be helpful to even people who don't identify as you know, being an extreme night owl or struggling particularly with those hours. Uh, the flip side to this is if you are and of course, limiting your light intake in the four to five hours before bed can help with that contrast as well. So that doesn't mean you have to live in a cave, but some of us come home and we sort of flick on all the lights. Everything is on all the way high and we leave them all on until it's bedtime and then we shut everything off. So, you know, give yourself a little light assessment in the evening and say, you know, do I need all of these lights on? Do, does everything need to be on level 10 or can I turn the dimmer switches down a little bit? Do I need all the lights on while I'm watching TV at night? Or can we turn the lights off in the room while we're watching TV? Um, If you have to work at night, that's fine. Uh, But there are things you can do to lower the brightness on your screen, lower the blue light levels on your your screen, set all your screens to turn on blue light filters automatically and turn on dark mode automatically. And all of these things limit the light that's coming off the screen and hitting your eyes. Uh, And all you're trying to do with all of this is just create that contrast. And so even if you are working on your screen, because your screen is, you know, on the dimmer side, and because you've got all that bright light during the day, in your morning, your brain is still able to tell the clear difference. That was wake up time. This is sleep time. It's time for us to start getting ready for bed. Um, And if you're someone who struggles at the opposite end, maybe you find you're dragging in the evenings or in the afternoons when everyone else seems fine. And then you wake up at four, five o'clock in the morning even though you don't want to be <laughs> bright eyed and bushy tailed, you want to use that bright light in the evening time. Cause what you're trying to communicate to your body is no, 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 it's not sleep time yet. It's still daytime. And then in the morning, when you wake up at you know 4am, resist the temptation to turn on all the lights and start your daily activities. Instead, try to stick to activities that are sort of relaxing and enjoyable and try your best to stay in dim light. Because what you're trying to relate to your body at that time is, no, no, it's not time to wake up yet. It's still nighttime. It's still sleep time.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily the screens that are the problem at night. It is just the level of light that's coming off of them.
1: It depends on what problem you're trying to address. I think when yeah. we talk about screens, we only hear about the blue light, the blue light, the blue light. And it's interesting because when you talk to clinicians, it's almost like you can hear them rolling their eyes on the other side of the phone. Um, Because yes, screens emit blue light and blue light, it simulates daylight. It's the most powerful frequency of light to do that. And so blue light at night can be bad for sleep. But especially with mitigating factors like the ones I just listed, the blue light you're getting from your screen is minimal. Uh, And screens also, have a benefit, especially for someone who's struggling with insomnia or any other sort of anxiety type um, situation, or is just sort of type A and high strung like me. Um, uh, not necessarily high strung, but definitely type A. Um, you know, we, we can benefit from this period of just unwinding, just chilling out, right? Putting on some stupid TV show and turning our brains off, so to speak, and, and just hanging out. And that period of unwinding is really important to helping you sleep. And so often when you tell people that they shouldn't look at screens within 2 or 3 hours before bed, you just removed the main source of relaxation and unwinding for them. And now the the detriment of of removing that is arguably much worse for your sleep than whatever small amount of blue light you're getting from your television screen. Interesting. Um, I once but- read Oh, oh, Sorry, okay. go ahead.
0: No, you, you continue on and then I'll ask <laughs> laugh you.
1: There is another element to this, though, and that is what you're using the screens for. And there's recent research to support, to support this assertion that it's actually what you're using the screens for more so than the light that impacts your sleep. Um, and so trying to stick to passive activities, things like watching a TV show, where you're just sort of a passive recipient of whatever's happening on the screen, rather than an active participant. Those are better than something where that's more active, like emailing, gaming, even scrolling social media. Um, and the other part is there are there is addictive nature um, to certain screen activities, particularly things that are endless. So there's a reason why social media just scrolls and scrolls and scrolls and scrolls forever, right? They want us to stay on that app as long as possible. Uh, video games now, right? When, when we were kids, video games, you, you maybe could play a game for an hour and you had beat the game and then you start over. And there are sort of very specific endpoints where you can pause and resume. Um, video games now are much more endless, right? You, there are some games that you, you know, 40, 50 hours, you could play straight in order to beat the game. And so there are certain things that you have to judge for yourself. Is this something that tends to suck me in and distract me to a point that I'm actually distracted from my own bodily signals? You ever like get so into a show or so into a game or scrolling or whatever it is that when you finally stop, you're like, Oh God, I really have to go to the bathroom. It's not that you just had to go to the bathroom. You've had to go to the bathroom for a while, but you were so sucked in by this thing you were doing that it actually distracted you from that cue. The same can happen with our sleepiness cues. We can scroll right past our bedtimes because that activity sucks us in so much that we're distracted from the cues that our body is giving us to say that we're sleepy and it's time for us to go to sleep. Um, so there, there is that element of screens as well that I want people to be aware of. This isn't just a, screens are fine, just do them. Um, but it, I think it's important to have a better understanding of what is it about the screen that's bad? What is it about the screen that's good? And how can you mitigate those things? So if giving up screens feels extreme to you, which it did to me, you have other options.
0: Right. Um, it's funny as you're describing okay. that, because I, in my, my quest for better sleep, I've tried a lot of things. And even recently, I've been trying things. And so now I'm learning, you know, maybe relax more, maybe don't throw the kitchen sink at it and just kind of be more. So I'm loving this for me. (laughs) Um, But recently I started reading just books, not on a Kindle, just actual books that you hold in your hand, hard copy books. And then I found a problem of, I would love the book so much that I wouldn't want to go to sleep. So I would end up staying up later reading the book Um, whereas if I had been looking at my phone, I might've gone to bed an hour earlier (laughs) just so it's, you know, it's these, this idea that is circulated, that books are good, screens are bad, or all these things we're told to sleep, but really the book could also be an impediment to sleeping if you don't want to put it down.
1: (laughs) Totally. And, uh, it's, it's funny you say that. And this is just another point of where, you know, these really aren't one size fits all solutions. A lot of it involves you knowing yourself. Um, one of the stories I feature in the book is actually a friend of mine, Brad, who uh, underwent, um, CBTI, which is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And a lot of the techniques in the book are based on that. Um, and he said that when he tried one recommended recommendation you sometimes hear is to do something boring, which I am very much against because for me doing something boring breeds frustration. And frustration yeah. is not something that helps your sleep, quite the contrary, as we discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even if it helps you in the moment, now it gives you something else to be fearful of when you're going to bed because you're thinking, God, I really hope I don't wake up because if I do, then I'm going to have to read the phone book again or whatever annoying task you've been given. And that sentiment will, is not you know, beneficial at all. Uh, so he tried, was told to try folding laundry um and that backfired horribly because he was like, you know, I hate I hate folding laundry. And so for me, it was just another task. It was this thing that I had to do. And that just made me feel more awake because now I was frustrated and, and whatnot. Um, and for him, he tried reading books, but same as you, he loves to read and found that he was so into the books that he's like, I was reading until, you know, 3:30 in the morning. There was no point where reading the book made me feel sleepy. And so if you're someone like Brad, you're going to have to find something else that works for you. And for him, I found this so interesting. He found reading cookbooks was the perfect sweet spot where he's really interested in cooking. So he wasn't bored by it. It didn't feel like a chore to read cookbooks, but it wasn't so stimulating to him that he kept and kept on reading and got sucked in. Uh, And so for most of us, hopefully you won't need as much of a trial and error period. Uh, But it is, I think, good to note that what is relaxing for one person can be stimulating for another. And so you kind of want to get to know yourself and figure out what works. And even though TV is often frowned upon, um, most of the clinicians that I spoke to, or all of them actually, were fine with TV at night. Uh, And they particularly just watching a show, because if you watch, you know, one episode, let's say one episode of a half hour show and something that, you know, doesn't particularly get you revved up, you know, maybe not the walking dead or, you know, Ozark or something like that. Um, there's a time limit on it, right? So you watch the show, you're up for half an hour, the episode is over And now you can sort of check in with yourself again, or even just give it another shot, go back to bed and see how you feel. If you still feel like you're laying in bed long enough to feel frustrated, then you can get up and watch another episode. Um, So if you feel like you can't find that perfect thing, like the reading of the cookbooks that does it for you, just try something that you enjoy, but that has sort of a a baked in time limit on it. So you have those periodic check-ins with yourself.
0: I love the individualization Mm -hmm. of this approach. It's so refreshing.
1: Uh, I think it can be really frustrating because it's so much I think it's tempting to hear like, you know, watch a show for 30 minutes and then go. But when mm. it comes to sleep, that often backfires because we do that thing and we do it perfectly and then we go to bed and we say, Okay, now I'm gonna sleep. And just sort of that pressure that we put on ourselves to sleep will keep us awake. So uh, so yeah, a more nuanced approach may be sound kind of annoying, but it is much more helpful.
0: And more freeing in the end, I think, because you end up figuring out the thing eventually through some trial and error that works for you.
1: And without upending your life.
0: Totally. Yeah. I work with people, I'm a nutrition coach now. Mm So I do the same process. And people come to me who are super frustrated from trying every diet in the past that worked for everybody else, but not for them. And we have this discussion about how we have to figure out what works for you. Right. And it can be frustrating at first, but then it's the absolute best once you figure it out, because you never have to do the diet again. And in the same way with this, you don't have to try all the sleep hacks everybody else is talking about. You just figure out what works for you and then rest assured that you've got it.
1: Exactly. And once you get the sort of the underlying gist of what's happening to create the problem and how the solutions, each solution works, then you can kind of tweak it or maybe even create your own, you know, by all means, be creative people. Um, But yeah, you can sort of then fold it in and say, oh, okay, well, that, plan doesn't work exactly for me. So I have a good example for this actually. Um, Constructive worry, or as I call it, a worry list or a brain dump is a great exercise uh, derived from cognitive behavioral therapy. And it involves just making sort of a list of all your worries on one side of a page, whatever's weighing on your mind. And then the next, the other side of the page, you just, you write down the very next step to resolving that issue. Uh, And it's, huge, uh, so, so great for kind of toning down that racing mind feeling when you go to bed, if you can do this a little bit before bed. But the, um, the common recommendation is to do this at least a couple of hours before bed and at the same time every single day and never in bed. However, my schedule is so crazy uh, that I knew that that wasn't going to, happen. There was no way that I was gonna find a period of time that I have free every single day that is at least a couple of hours before bed. It just doesn't happen. And so I knew that if I tried to do that, I just wasn't gonna do it at all. Yeah. Uh, so I just put the notes notebook in my nightstand. And right before I went to get ready for bed, I would have my, you know, my worry time and I would just sit right on the bed but not, you know, under the covers laying as if I'm going to sleep. I would sit on the bed back against my, you know, headboard and write out my list and do the writing exercise that way. And then I would go ahead and get up and then brush my teeth and wash my face and do everything else that I do to actually get ready for bed. And then come in and turn the lights off and go to sleep. Um, the exercise has lots and lots of benefits, but my my point is that it still worked for me, even though I wasn't doing it exactly as recommended. And in fact breaking the cardinal rule of nothing in bed besides sleep or sex. Um, because my brain was still able to tell the difference, right? The whole point is for your brain to be able to differentiate between that is the time to worry and think about things. And this is now sleep time. And mm-hmm. for me, it was enough lights on head against the backrest on top of the covers, uh, you know, et cetera, was enough of a difference between that and after my bedtime routine, in bed, lights off, head on pillow, in my PJs, my brain was able to differentiate between those two things. And anyone else I've talked to that has tried this, that has done it in the same way that I did, said it worked for them too, even though they were technically doing it in bed and right before bed. So I just use that as a small example. For any of these techniques, You know, make it work for you. No one's judging you on your form. And you, very few of these things, if, if any of them, actually have to be done perfectly. You just want to embrace the spirit of the thing.
0: Yeah, I love that. Um, One of the final questions I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment?
1: I think a lot of it just starts with the initial acknowledgement that you are worth it and it is worth it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because especially if you lead a busy lifestyle, it's so easy to get caught up in everything else that you have to do and put your health on the back burner because it feels like something that can be worked on later right very few of us have health issues that are going to present themselves tomorrow or in an hour or you know whatever else it is if we don't do that thing right now right working out today is not going to result in if we don't do it there's no deadline on tomorrow that's going to expire. And so it's so easy to just keep putting that off and to put ourselves on the back burner for other things that feel more immediately urgent. Uh, but I know for me in this experience in finally addressing my sleep issues, I found the return on investment was huge because I was, you know, shortchanging myself on sleep in so many ways, trying to keep all the other plates spinning. And I realized when I took the time to, you know, put this thing together and, and really fix my problems, everything else started falling into place because I started feeling so much better in all these other ways. And, and you know, for example, when you sleep poorly, it, it triggers, you know, imbalances in your hormones that make you want to eat more, eat badly, feel less satisfied even after the same kind of meal than if you had slept well. So it can be really hard, for example, to lose weight when you are sleep deprived. And I wanted, you know, to improve my nutrition. And I found that my diet had kind of like, you know, crashed and burned during this period of time. And that was just one of the many, many, many things on my long list of things for me to improve that was on the back burner. But by focusing on my sleep, I improved that. That kind of resolved the dietary issues on their own because... I resolved the hormonal imbalances, I guess, you know, by fixing my sleep, I no longer wanted to eat that stuff. I felt more satisfied more quickly. And everything else just sort of fell into place. The same with, you know, my focus. I had very sort of, I felt like my mind was always foggy when I was uh, sleep deprived. And so I had a hard time focusing on things and things just took me a lot longer. Whether it was like a writing task, I would hit writer's block a lot more, or even just remembering what the heck I was doing. Um, And so you start to do things so much more efficiently, and you realize you had been playing on hard mode the whole time. And I think that can apply to, um, you know, any of the pillars of health, including nutrition, for example. And so I think if you can focus again on sort of what it is that's your big problem area, and if even just starting in one area and just pulling on that right thread, can create a snowball effect in the right direction, where suddenly sleep improvements beget sleep improvements, and general health improvements beget health improvements.
0: Yeah, I love that idea of sleep begets sleep. They say that a lot with kids, right? That like if they have their nap, that's good for sleeping later before they sleep.
1: It can sound so frustrating, right? Because when you're sleeping poorly, you're like, great, thanks. How do I get that started? (laughs) Um, But I think that's one of my points in the book is, you know, when you find, you just want to find that difference maker. And it may be just one thing, it may be a few things that you can pinpoint as you read and you start to recognize certain uh, you know identifying flags of of your problems and you start recognizing certain solutions that feel like they would you know work for you. You then start to pick and choose, okay, what what is the most effective thing to fix my problem, and what's the easiest thing for me to do? And you kind of combine those things to form a plan that you can stick to and that you can start right away. and again, and then then one thing starts to improve on the other, and then the other things become easier. So, For someone like me, I was not going to start by addressing my sleep issues via nutrition because I'm a foodie. I was already finding I was having trouble in that area. And if I just automatically started by trying to do intermittent fasting or something like that, that, I knew that was not going to work for me because it was going to be a huge sacrifice and I was Mm -hmm. not going to be able to stick to it. But timing my light exposure, especially as an overnight news anchor, I knew was going to be a pretty effective place to start. And it seemed easy enough for me to use a bright light in my bathroom, put on shades in the morning when I'm leaving work so that my body still thinks it's nighttime. Simple tricks like that were a really good place to start. And using that writing exercise and some other sort of strategic um, sleep scheduling to try to consolidate my sleep window and consolidate my sleep again. Those were really easy places for me to start that based on my research seemed like they would be incredibly effective. And thankfully, I was right. And once that started, that flywheel turning, I was able to then do other things much more easily. And now I'm in a position where because I'm sleeping well, I don't even need half the things that I needed at the time. Mm, so right. once you start sleeping better, you start sleeping more soundly, your sleep becomes less um, easy to disrupt. And so when you first start this, you might need the room at a perfect temperature and you might need no sound at all, or you might need a sound machine or you might need a sleep mask or you might need, you know, and that's fine. Do whatever it is that you need to start getting you know, to start getting the sleep that you need. But you may find once the problem starts to alleviate, your sleep becomes more much more easily and you actually are sleeping more deeply. So you end up not needing those things anymore.
0: Well, this is all great news. I'm so grateful for you uh, being on here today and sharing all of this with us. Where can listeners follow and find you and buy The Sleep Fix?
1: Um, so... SleepFixMethod.com uh, will automatically reroute you to the publisher's page for the book. The book is sold anywhere books are sold, so you could just jump right on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever you know your local bookstore should have it too. Um, and to find more information, I actually just started brand new social media accounts dedicated only to my sleep content because you know as a news anchor, obviously I post a lot of stuff about news and whatnot on my personal social media accounts. So if you go to um, at SleepFixMethod on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, etc. Um, that's where um, I, particularly on, on, on Instagram now. But I'm starting. I'm going to get my act together soon and get on the other ones too. Um, <laughs> but yeah, at Sleep Fix Method um, on social media, and you'll you'll start seeing a ton of, of sleep content, um, tips, and other other things to look out for that I think will be really helpful to people.
0: Your Instagram's awesome. You do a lot of videos, and they're just very accessible and. Yeah, I love
1: it. Thanks. And you know, the, the hard part about writing a book is you finish it and it gets published, you know, months later and then it's there and it's permanent. And I'm so proud of everything that's in the sleep fix. But I'm constantly learning new things that I want to shout from the rooftops. So, you know, one of the things I came across not too long ago that a sleep expert who I trust immensely sent to me is a sleep health screener that's uh, mm-hmm. being created right now by a very renowned sleep scientist. And it's still sort of a work in progress, but it's fully functional. Um, and it's great because you jump on, you answer a few questions, and it will just spit out a number of results that it will flag for you, or hopefully just one or maybe zero. Um, but but sleep disorders or sleep issues that you are showing risk factors for. And so oh, wow. now you have this tool to see online. That will help you start on this on this journey and help you know what to look out for, what to ask your doctor about, what solutions to focus on, uh, and things like that. That you know, it didn't exist when I wrote the book. I can now go to social media and share that with my following, and it, you know, it's super helpful to people and it helps me keep my followers up to date.
0: Right. Well, awesome. I'm gonna go check that. You have that on your Instagram?
1: Uh, yeah, I often will get asked about it um, on. On social, so it's in certain posts about Insta uh, on my Insta post, and um, and yeah, so it, it will come up repeatedly. Awesome,
0: awesome. Well, thank you again so much for your time today. I'm I loved everything I heard. I feel very validated in many ways, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a good it's a good place to be at to feel like I don't have to be that orthosomnia uh, sufferer. Yeah, sometimes just
1: things. I think sometimes just hearing it described and. And in the, in exactly the way that you felt, you realize, oh, okay, it's not just me and you know yeah. I'm not broken. This is an issue that affects lots of people and it's fixable.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Diane, again. Can't wait to stay connected off air. Thank you. Well, that's
1: all for today.
0: Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition, and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.